0: Welcome to First Church. So glad you guys are joining us, whether you're in person or online, and we do have a ton of people joining us online right now, so if you're here at North Carnett, would you put your hands together and welcome in our online family today. So excited to have them joining us, and I like to point out sometimes some of our online family who's talking to our online hosts, and the Lewis family, they're joining us right now, so glad you guys are with us, as well as all the families and individuals who are worshiping as part of our online community today. Well, my son, Alex, he's going to turn eight next month, and he is definitely a thrill seeker. He's a daredevil, and he'll try just about anything. Just this past week, we were in our backyard, and we have this blow-up house or this um, jump house, I guess you might call it, that grandparents got my kids a few years ago. And so we had it blown up, and they were jumping on, and they were going back and forth between it and the swing set. And Alex was jumping off the swing set into the yard, and I thought, you know, buddy, wouldn't it be cool if you jumped off the swing into the bounce house? I mean, wouldn't that be fun? He's like, yeah, let's do it. He didn't even hesitate. So we moved the bounce house closer to the swing set so it would catch him. And this is him trying it. And his goal as he tried to jump is he wanted to jump over top of the bounce house into the actual pit there. And he almost accomplishes it. Here it is. Bam! Just like that. And then he gets up and he's all excited and he's pumped. And then he did it like a thousand more times after that. Because that's my son. He's a thrill seeker and he will try just about anything. He's one of those embrace the moment kind of guys we went to silver dollar city as a family some time ago and when we got there the crowds weren't very big and so we were realizing we're gonna have to ride all the rides and Alice looked at me and he said daddy let's try to ride all of the rides twice every ride in silver dollar city I was like why do you want to ride them twice And he goes why not and that's just him you know if you have the opportunity to do something do it go for it at night when we're getting ready for bed I'll tell the kids okay we got about 10 more minutes left and then we got to start And baths and get ready for bed. And when I say that, when we have 10 more minutes, I mean it's time for us to start winding down. Alex takes it as what can I cram into these last 10 minutes you know, before I go to bed. That's just him, he's an embrace the moment kind of kid. And you know, there's a Latin phrase to describe that mindset, that perspective, and you've probably heard it before, it's used a lot in our culture, it's carpe diem. And it means seize the day. You may have heard that phrase in a graduation speech. You may have heard it on that old movie, Dead Poet Society. You know, that famous line, Seize the day, boys, make your lives extraordinary. But I was doing a little bit of research on this phrase, carpe diem. And it actually comes from ancient horticulture practices. And what it actually means is pick while a garden is ripe. That's what it means. Pick while the Day is ripe. In other words, while you have the opportunity, while it's there, pick. While the garden is ripe, pick while the day is ripe. And isn't that the type of life that we want to live? We don't want to get to the end of our lives feeling like that we've wasted the opportunities that we've had. We've wasted our lives, just coasted through this life. We want to be a people who sees the day. And believe it or not, that's the type of life that God wants us to live as well. As followers of Jesus, we're not supposed to be people who just pay the rent and coast through life. We're supposed to be people who make the most of every opportunity that God gives us. That's exactly what the Bible says. Look at what Paul writes in the book of Ephesians. Paul says, so be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. See, what Paul here is saying is, we're not here to waste time. God has a job for us to do. He has something he wants us to accomplish. So don't waste your days, but take advantage. Make the most of every opportunity that God gives you, every open door that he puts before you. And what is that God wants us to do in this life? He wants us to make a difference for the sake of His Son. He wants us to change the world around us. He wants us to shine His Son's light in the midst of the darkness. We're not here just to waste time. We're here to change lives. And I know that as we think about that, it can seem a little overwhelming because we live in a world that can be very, very dark at times. I mean, when you watch the news or get online and read stories about what's going on in our culture, it's easy to get discouraged and get down and say, God, you want us to change the world? I mean, God, do you realize how chaotic this world is? How crazy it is at times? I mean, let's be transparent here. We live in a world that is full of fear and uncertainty a world that's full of hate and division, a world that is oftentimes dark. And guys, I just want to let you know my heart. As crazy as things are right now, I am so thankful to be able to be part of the church in this season. I am so thankful to be able to be part of God's church in this period of history, because I believe what we have in Jesus is what people are longing for, what people need, what people are hoping for. We have what the world needs right now. And I believe that God is giving us an opportunity to show the world His Son like never before. You see, when the pandemic stripped away so much of what people put their hope in, that wasn't the case for us because our hope is in Jesus. And that's a hope that never fades away, that never disappears, that never dies. We have a hope that lasts forever. And yeah, a virus may be able to stop everything else in our society and cancel everything else in our culture, but a virus cannot cancel Jesus. And a virus cannot cancel the hope that we have in him and when we look around at our world today and we see so much division and animosity and anxiety when we look around our world today and we see things like politics and racism and societal issues dividing People and tearing people apart what an opportunity we have to demonstrate the unifying power the gospel of Jesus Christ to show people that everyone is loved by God. That everyone has a greater purpose that he wants them to live for. That everyone is his child. To show the world that the dividing walls that men have created can be squashed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We have an opportunity before us unlike any other. And we shouldn't see our cultural situation As a problem but as an invitation to live out our mission like never before I heard somebody say just the other day I was having a conversation with them and they're a leader at another church not this church but they said you know this pandemic has just done so much harm to the church it has set the church in America back more than anything else in our lifetimes And then they went on to say, and I don't know if we will ever see the church recover in our lives. And I get where that frustration comes from. I understand where that sentiment comes from. I get it. There are a lot of churches right now that are struggling. And all the Christians who have given in to the uncertainties of this world, and so they're struggling to understand what's going on as well. I get where it comes from, and I understand it but I adamantly disagree with it because I don't believe that our mission stops. No matter what we face, no matter what we're up against, no matter what's going on in the world around us, the mission of Jesus is unstoppable. And I believe that we are here to live with a mindset that says the gates of hell will not prevail against God's church. So yeah, during the pandemic, we had to make tweaks and changes, and we had to pivot and do ministry like we've never done it before. But we kept our eyes on Jesus, and we kept going where he wants us to go because what we often see as an interruption, Jesus sees as an opportunity. And every now and then, I will hear Christian leaders and Christian people make this statement and say, you know, we're living in a post-Christian world. You will never hear me say that. You know why? Because when I read the Bible, what I find is that there is nothing post-Christ. There is nothing post the church. There is nothing post Christian because Jesus is God's final plan to save the world. And his church is his final instrument in order to introduce the world to his son. There is no such thing as a post Christian world. There is just a world in need of Christ. And that's the world that we live in and that's the world that we've been living in. And if we're looking around at our society and thinking, you know, the church doesn't have the influence that it needs to have, that's on us. It's time for us to be the church that Jesus established us to be, that Jesus is calling us to be, that he knows we can be because we are here for just this purpose. And I am thankful to be part of the church in this season. And that's why we started this series few weeks ago called We Are First Church because we want to make sure that we're a church that stays focused on our mission in the midst of a culture full of distractions because it's easy to get distracted at times. And so throughout the series, we've been talking about our mission statement, what our mission is as a church. And I've mentioned this every single week in this series because I think it's important for us to keep in front of us. And our mission as a church is to love Jesus and love like Jesus. It's based on the two greatest commandments that Jesus gives us that all the law and the prophets hang on. To love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Love God, love people. That's what it's all about. And it doesn't matter what else you do. If you're not loving God with everything you have and loving people as he has loved us, then you're missing the main thing. And we want for this not just to be something that we say and talk about and we put on t-shirts, but we want this to be the driving principle, the driving mission of our lives. We wanna take this mission into our homes, into the streets, into our places of work, and show people the love of Jesus because we believe we are here to unleash a revolution of God's love on the 918 and beyond. And talking about bringing this mission into our homes. I received a text a couple of weeks ago of a family in our church that just built a new home. And in the entryway to their home, look at what they put. Love Jesus, love like Jesus. I love that because they want everybody when they first walk into their home to know this is what their family is all about. And they even sent a video of their little girl talking about it. Here it is. Love like Jesus, that's right. I mean, how sweet is that? Love like Jesus, so simple that even a kid can understand it. And even though it's simple, it is profound because when we actually do that, we will change the world. And Jesus expects for us to be loving like Jesus on a daily basis. In fact, listen to what Paul writes in the book of Galatians. He says, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Did you catch that? The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. In other words, it doesn't matter how many times you attend church. Even though being part of the church community is extremely important for our spiritual development, don't misunderstand me. It doesn't matter how many times you come to church. If you're not expressing your faith in love on a daily basis, then what good is it? It doesn't matter how many Bible verses you have memorized. Even though studying scripture is very important and we need to be diving into God's word so that he speaks to us. But it doesn't matter how many Bible verses you have memorized. If you're not taking your faith and expressing it in love, what good is it? It doesn't matter how much you give, whether it's your time or your resources or your money. Even though the Bible tells us we are to be generous and everything we own doesn't belong to us, it belongs to God. But it doesn't matter how much you're physically giving if you are not taking your faith and expressing it in love. And what good is it? Paul says the only thing that counts is when you take this faith that you claim to believe and you express it in love. You unleash the love of God on others. And that's why here at First Church, we have three expectations for everyone who partners with our ministry here. We've been talking about these three expectations in this series. The first expectation we have, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, is we want everybody pursuing a transformational relationship with Jesus. We want everybody who's a part of our church to be pursuing a personal relationship with Jesus. Last week we talked about how we want everybody who's part of our church to be growing together in community because we are better together and we need one another. But then this last part of our triangle, this last part of this discipleship triangle, these expectations we have for our church family is that we want every single person who partners with us to be unleashing God's love on the world around us. Now the question is, how exactly do we do that? Because it's one thing to say, okay, we need to unleash love, but what does that look like, what does that mean? Well, we need to be modeling our lives after Jesus. We need to be living as he lived. To love like Jesus, you have to live like Jesus. And what that means is we need to be embodying the verbs, the action words that Jesus embodied. Because here's the thing, the word Christian and the word church, they're both nouns. Now, we don't always use them as nouns. We use them sometimes as adjectives. But the truth is, in Scripture, they're always nouns. And If you will reach back to your high school English class, you will recall that in order for a noun to work in a sentence, it needs a verb. Nouns need verbs. A noun by itself doesn't do anything. It doesn't have a purpose. Nouns need verbs in order for a sentence to work, and the same is true when it comes to our spiritual lives. In order for us to be followers of Jesus, that word Christian just means little Christ, one who represents Christ in this world. And that word church, it means assembly, so it's a collection of those who claim to be little Christ, who claim to represent him. In order for us to be representatives of Christ in this world, we've got to embody the verbs that he embodied. Verbs like serve, give, feed, clothe, see, go, help, teach, tell, share, and the list goes on and on. If you do a quick study through the Gospels and you highlight or underline the different verbs that describe Jesus, those verbs should also describe His church. It should describe, they should describe you and me. And when we actually live out those verbs, we unleash love. And God doesn't want us hoarding His love. He wants us giving it away. We're not supposed to just sit back and say, okay, we are loved by God, and that's great. God is giving us enough love that we should be overflowing with it to those around us. But if we're not careful, we'll do just that. We will hoard his love. In fact, that passage that I looked at just a second ago, when it says the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love, look at the very next line, which we didn't read. Paul writes, you were running a good race. In other words, you were doing that. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? Paul says, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You were doing that, but something happened. Something changed, and now you're not. Several years ago, I was asked to go and speak on a Sunday night at a friend of mine's church, and so I went to go speak at this little church as a favor to him. And when I got there, it was a little country church. Maybe the building would seat 100 people, and there were like 15 people there total. There weren't a whole lot of people there, and they were nice and sweet for the most part, but it wasn't a very lively group. In fact, as I'm preaching, I'm wondering if they're awake or not, honestly. That's what I was thinking the entire time. But when I got done preaching, I was in the back of the the building shaking everyone's hand, which is what you do in small churches, you know, when the service is done. I'm shaking everybody's hand, and this older gentleman walks up to me, and he says, I'm offended by something you said. I thought, what did I say that was offensive to this crowd especially? And he said, you made the statement, and I did say this in the sermon, he said, you made the statement that God doesn't want us just to be pew sitters, he wants us to be difference makers. I was like, yeah, I said that. (laughs) I'm not ashamed of that at all. And he said, I'm a proud pew sitter. And I just want to let you know, if it wasn't for this pew setter and the money that I give to this church, this church wouldn't be able to keep the lights on. And he walked off. Another man walked up after him. who was much nicer, by the way. And that other gentleman walked up after him, and he said, Oh, young man, that was a great sermon. Good job. Yeah, that was just really great. But too bad the people who needed to hear it weren't here. I'm like, No, I think they were here, honestly. The guy before you, I really do. And so I looked at him, and I was just like, to this nice gentleman, I was like, so what are you guys doing, though, to reach people who need to hear it? And he looked at me and said, what do you mean? I said, well, when I drove here tonight, I mean, there were tons of, you know, families out in their front yards. There were homes all around this church building. What are you guys doing to reach out to those people? And he didn't have an answer. It was as if he had never thought about it before. And I remember on my drive home that night, I thought, this is not what I signed up for. I don't want to be part of a church like that, a church that is alive in name, that still meets on a regular basis, but isn't unleashing God's love and changing lives. I don't want to be a church like the church that's mentioned in the book of Revelation, the church at Sardis. This was an actual church that existed in the first century, and listen to what Jesus says to them. He says, I know your deeds, that you have a reputation that you are alive, but in reality you are dead. In other words, you're alive in name only. I know what's really going on, and you're really spiritually dead. Every single year here at First Church, we have a staff Christmas party, and we always have a white elephant gift exchange. So people bring gifts. Some people bring gag gifts. Other people bring more serious gifts. And so we fight over the good gifts, and people don't want the gag gifts, and it's always a whole lot of fun. And this past year, Tim Tibbles, well, he hit the ball out of the park with his gift. He brought this right here. I've actually got it wrapped up with me. And we tried to guess, because all the gifts are always wrapped, what this was. Some people thought it might be an, be an iron, ironing board. Other people thought that it might be like a cutout from a movie scene, because we used those during our Christmas series, you know. So maybe it was one of our leftover movie cutouts. We weren't sure exactly what it was. And then somebody finally picked it. And this is what it was. Are you ready? I'm going to unwrap it for you, just like we did on that night when we had our Christmas party. And here it is. It's a cardboard cutout, all right. And it's a really handsome dude, but it's not a movie star. It's your preacher. And so we got this. And actually, I'm holding a mirror there because I just preached a sermon um, where I held a mirror up. And so he got a picture from that sermon, I guess, and he definitely went over the $10 limit on this, but still, he got it, and here's the thing, I thought, nobody's gonna want this. Our staff fought over it. They wanted it that night, and here's the thing, Allison, my wife, she wanted it, and she ended up not getting it, and so she was bummed at the end of the night, and she was talking about how she really wanted this cardboard cutout of me. I was like, but honey, you get to go home with the real thing. (laughs) And she looked at me and goes, eh, like that, like. (laughs) Not very impressed, but, you know, there are way too many cardboard churches in our world today. Churches that have the appearance of the church, but they're stiff and boring and dead, and they're not doing anything but just looking like a church. And I told myself a long time ago, I don't want to be part of a cardboard church, a church like that. I want to be part of a church that talks to real people about real issues that they're dealing with in life and introduces them to our real God who can offer them real life. That's the church that I want to be a part of that is making a difference in this world. And I believe that's why God wants us here. That's why I'm here. I hope that's why you're here. And I believe the world needs us. The words that Mordecai said to Esther in Esther chapter 4, that she was there for such a time as this, I believe we're here now at this moment in history for such a time as this. Now, I know that when we think about everything going on in our world today, it's easy to get overwhelmed and think, but you know, Chad, this idea of changing the world, that's a big task. And we're just in one little corner of the world, Owasso, Oklahoma. What can we do to really make that big of a difference? Well, yes, this task of changing the world it is a big task, but it is not too big for our God. And that's a lesson that Jesus disciples needed to learn in Mark chapter 8 Mark chapter 6, I'm sorry. So as we wrap up this series today, I'm going to look at Mark chapter 6. And this is one of my favorite stories in scripture. And in Mark chapter 6 what we find out is going on is that Jesus and his disciples they are tired because Jesus is at the height of his popularity. Thousands of people are following Jesus everywhere he goes, and he's just finished sending out his disciples on a teaching tour. They come back to him, Jesus gets word that his friend and family member, John the Baptist, has been executed, and so the disciples, they're physically and emotionally tired. So this is what happens. It says in Mark chapter six that then, because so many people were coming and going, that they did not even have a chance, Jesus and his disciples did not even have a chance to eat. Jesus said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So this is a day in the life of Jesus. Every time Jesus went out in public, it was a crazy scene. People were flocking to him. So Jesus wants to get away for a little bit because his disciples haven't even had a chance to eat. They're worn out and they're tired. So they get into a boat, they cross the lake to go to a new location and the people figure out, the crowds figure out where Jesus is going and they run on foot to beat him there. And so when Jesus arrives on the other side of the lake, there's thousands of people waiting for him. And if I was Jesus in that moment, I might have been tempted to say, oh, man, can't you guys give me a break? I mean, come on. I'm supposed to be on vacation here. You know, what's going on? But that's not how Jesus responds. That's not his heart. Look at what Jesus says or does. It says, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. See, even when Jesus was out of energy, He never ran out of compassion. And when he lands and he sees this crowd and he sees them hurting, the text says he has compassion on them. we've talked about this Greek word compassion before. It's the Greek word phlognizomai. And it literally means to hurt in your bowels because you see someone else in pain and that hurt will not go away until you do something about someone else's pain. Jesus sees these people hurting and so he has compassion on them. And how does he have compassion on them? The Bible says he teaches them See, a lot of times when we think about Jesus showing compassion, we think about him meeting somebody's physical needs. You know, like giving somebody food or doing some miraculous healing or something like that. But you know what Jesus does in this moment? To show compassion, he teaches them about God because he knows what this crowd needs the most is to hear about the life-changing love of God, to have a relationship with their Heavenly Father. So he gives them what they spiritually need, what their souls are longing for, and he teaches them. See, Jesus' mindset was see a need, meet a need. And what the people needed most in that moment was to know about God and his plan for their lives. And so they hang on his every word. And Jesus preaches all day long. And the people don't go anywhere. They're hanging on his every word. And this spiritual hunger that they have, well, it leads to physical hunger. Because they've been there all day listening to him, and they haven't even wanted anything to eat. But after a while, they start to get hungry. The Bible says this. It says, by this time, it was late in the day, so Jesus' disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. So this is a pretty good suggestion, right? The disciples are looking around, they're reading the crowd, people are getting hungry. And they turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, listen, the people are hungry. They're getting a little hangry here, you know. We need to send them away so they can get something to eat because we don't have enough food to feed them. We don't have enough money to feed these people. Jesus, just cut your sermon short and send the people home. And Jesus, like any good preacher, never cuts his sermon short. So what Jesus does is he offers an alternative. Look what Jesus says in response. But he answered, you give them something to eat you you give them something to eat now we find out that there are 5,000 men counted in this group they didn't count the women and the children so we guesstimate there are like 15,000 or more people here listening to Jesus and Jesus turns to his disciples and says you give them something to eat you feed them They didn't have enough money to feed these people. They didn't have enough resources to feed these people. There weren't enough stores around to feed these people. That's why they say send the people home back to their own villages, wherever they came from to get food. What Jesus is asking of his disciples in this moment is impossible, it's absurd, and the disciples want to remind Jesus here, or at least let Jesus know of the absurdity of what he's asking, so listen to how they respond. They said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? Jesus, what you're asking of us is impossible. But you see, Jesus already knew what he was going to do. John's gospel tells us that. And Jesus is intentionally putting his disciples in a situation that is beyond their capacity so they will learn to trust him. And let me just ask you, Do you ever think, Jesus, you're asking too much of me? Jesus, do you really expect me to love my enemy? Do you realize what he or she did to me? Jesus, do you really expect me to forgive that person who hurt me? I mean, they haven't even said they're sorry yet. Jesus, do you really expect me to save my sexuality for marriage? Nobody's doing that. Jesus, do you really expect me to buy into the biblical definition of marriage that was thrown out in our culture a long time ago? Jesus, do you really expect me to be honest in in my place of work when everybody else is cutting corners? Jesus, do you really expect me to be generous? I mean, I want to be able to retire one day and pay off my house and go on vacations. Jesus, do you really expect your church to take on the gates of hell? You're just asking way too much of us. That's what the disciples here are saying. And Jesus wants to teach them this. Jesus wants to teach them that he's never going to ask them to do something without also giving them the power to do it. And the same is true for us. Jesus never asks us to do something without also giving us the power to accomplish it. If Jesus says we can do it, then we can do it. And the disciples had forgotten this. You see, the the disciples, their response is the same response that any good atheist could have given. It's the same response that any non-believer could have given because their response has no faith in it whatsoever. And guys, I've been a part of conversations with other Christians where the response that these other Christians have come up with have been responses that any good atheist could give. I mean, Jesus, yeah, that's a great idea and everything, but we don't have the budget for it. Yeah, Jesus, that's a great idea and everything, but we don't have the manpower for it. Jesus, we think that's a good idea, but we don't have the resources for it or the time for it. Jesus, that's a good idea, but I don't think we can get everybody on board to do it. Jesus, it's a great idea, but... And what Jesus here is asking his disciples to do is not to deny the reality that they find themselves in, but he's asking them to rely on a greater reality. The same is true for us. Jesus asks us to deny reality on our own. We can't do what he's asking us to do. But he's asking us to rely on a greater reality and that's God's reality. Because you see, these disciples had left God out of the equation and Jesus expects us to put his presence into practice. He expects for us to believe he can do the unexpected. And we need to be a people who live like we expect God to show up because when God is with us we better start second guess- guessing what we always thought was possible and that's exactly what happens in this passage the disciples obey Jesus and so they go and they divide the crowd up and have them sit down just like Jesus told them to in different groups And imagine being in this situation. They're promising the people food, and if they don't deliver on this food, how embarrassing is that going to be? I mean, I'm sure the disciples are thinking, if this doesn't work out, you know, we're giving these people false hope. I don't know how many times when I've finished a sermon, I've had somebody come up to me and say, you know what, Chad, that was a good sermon, but, you know, I just think you're more positive about things than I am, or you're just too Pollyanna about stuff. And I get accused of that occasionally. I really do. But it's not because I deny the reality that we're living in. It's because I'm trusting in a greater reality. I know who's with us. I know who is on our side. And so disciples, they, the disciples, they do what Jesus commands them to do, and this is what happens. It says, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. So wrap your minds around this 15,000 people. Don't just get a bite to eat, but they eat until they're full. They're satisfied, fully satisfied. And what I think is so cool is that it says that he gave the food to his disciples to to set before the people. See, the disciples couldn't create the miracle, but Jesus allowed them to distribute it. The disciples, they couldn't manufacture this miracle, but he allowed them to pass it out. And the same is true for us. Guys, when we look at our church and we look at our own lives, we may think, God, we don't have a whole lot to offer. But what this passage is teaching us is this. Jesus can do a lot with a little. Offer him what you have, and he'll use it to do great things, things beyond your own abilities. God can do a whole lot with a little. And there's an example of that we heard about a few weeks ago. And we asked Kelly, who's a member of our church, to sit down and share her story take a look at this real fast
1: i first became involved in at at first church when we moved here Um, my husband and i moved here in 1994 um, with three sweet little kids got here in 1994 we we had a small house that we built here um, and then we just came and visited first church and We just loved the people, and so we decided to stay. So once we um, joined First Church, and I got a little bit involved, um, and because I had not grown up in the church, everything was brand new to me. Um, I I got involved a little bit in the women's ministry, did a little bit in the nursery, um, but it really wasn't until a couple years after we joined that I became pregnant with my first baby and I became very, very ill. So I was bedridden for um, about six months, five to six months. And at that time, I remember somebody calling from the church and saying, you know, we heard you're really ill. We wanna take care of you. We know you have three kids at home. Um, And so somebody brought a meal. Um, And they continued to bring meals for like the next six months Two, three times a week, and I just remember being blown away as a relatively new Christian, and thinking, "Gosh, this is how the people of Jesus take care of one another," and and, and that really did spur me, after the pregnancies, to um, get involved uh, on the meals team because I had just been so blessed by receiving those for my family. I wanted to give that back. This is what. A church family does for one another they they hold each other up when they cannot stand up
0: it's the little things that god can turn into big things bringing a meal to somebody what an impact that had on her life what is it that god is asking you to do you may think it's small but he can use it in a big way maybe it's volunteering in our kids ministry student ministry Maybe it's being a greeter here, working in our cafe. Maybe it's being a leader of a small group. Maybe it's going on a mission trip. Maybe it's joining our Love 918 team and reaching out to our community. Maybe it's just simply taking some cookies to a next-door neighbor and showing them some love. I don't know what it is, but whatever the small thing is that God is asking you to do, he can use it in a big way because Jesus can do a lot with a little I love how this passage ends because it says that Jesus told his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over and let nothing be wasted. Now, why does Jesus say this? Because he doesn't like litter? No, that's not why he says that. There's a purpose behind this. It says that the disciples gathered 12 baskets full of leftovers. How many disciples were there? Twelve. There was one for each disciple. Why? Because I think Jesus wanted to give them a tangible reminder of his power of how he can do a lot with a little, so that when they face the next test of their faith, they could remember that basket that they carried around full of the results of Jesus' power. And when you get down, when you get discouraged, when you think that you're facing an impossible task, what has God put in your basket from the past that's a reminder of his faithfulness? Because here's the thing, forgetfulness leads to faithlessness. And we need to constantly be reminding ourselves of our God who has the power to feed the multitudes with only five loaves of bread and two fish. And that's why I wanna start a new practice. I wanna put a basket like this in my home, maybe even in my office. And I wanna put little sheets of paper in it that I write on. As God does incredible things in my life, as he works in powerful ways, I wanna write that stuff down so I don't forget them. Then I want to put them in this basket and fill it up so that the next time that Satan attacks me, the next time I'm down, the next time I'm discouraged, I can walk back to this basket and pull out a slip of paper and be reminded of the power of our God and how he is always with me. The truth is he's with you as well, so maybe what you need to do is get a basket. Whether you get a physical one or not, Look back at how God has worked in your life and how he's worked throughout history and be reminded we are not alone. He's with us and we are here for such a time as this. Our world is longing for what we have. They are hungry for what we have. And you know what Jesus is telling us first church today? He's saying to us, you give them something to eat. And that's what we're going to do. You know why? Because we are First Church. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for today. May we be reminded that the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. May we never forget why we're here, the purpose that you have given us. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.